Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session, episode 308. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They're online at respectsextet.com, celebrating their 10th anniversary with shows in New York this week and again in October. And you can find out more at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo and who tweets at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. I'm on Twitter, too, at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. Please join the folks who follow me and get a stream of daily jazz and other information coming at you. You can also join the mailing list at thejazzsession.com. Just click on the mailing list link. And, of course, the show is free. All 308 episodes are online for you to listen to whenever you want to. But the show only survives because of members. So if you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member, which you can do for as little as 10 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. My thanks to All About Jazz for carrying the show at their website, allaboutjazz.com. They also provide a widget for the show, which you can put on your own website. And if you do that, please let me know because I'll mention you in my newsletter. Thanks. Today's show is an interview I actually conducted this morning. I think this is just about as real-time as the jazz session has ever been. Uh, it's less than three hours since I finished talking with Reese Chatham. He's been in town for the last several days here in New York playing shows, and I've been out of town. And so it was uh, very lucky that I was able to meet up with him this morning uh, before he flies back to Europe. So I was really excited to have the chance to speak with him. Before our conversation, let's hear some music from his new record on Northern Spy. It's called Outdoor Spell. My guest is the composer and trumpeter and guitarist and effects wizard, Reese Chatham. It's such a pleasure to speak to you. Thanks for doing this. And such a pleasure to be here. The uh, the new newest record is called Outdoor Spell, and 
if you'll allow me a small anecdote, I got into radio originally by collecting old radio shows, and the first one I ever really remember hearing was Orson Welles' version of War of the Worlds. And toward the middle of it, there's this moment where the whole world is collapsing, and a guy's on top of a building kind of announcing that the, the aliens are coming closer, and there's this kind of rhythmic series of boat horns in the background that they stole from somewhere. And there's a point about two-thirds of the way into the second track on Outdoor Spell, where there's, just by coincidence, a very similar kind of pitch cluster of horn sounds. And it made me wonder if, in your own mind, as you're kind of layering this music and seeing what happens, if there are ever these kind of, like, programmatic impulses or kind of non-musical ideas that inform the way you put these sounds together, the starting points, where the compositions might go. Uh, Actually, when I first started playing trumpet, uh, I picked up trumpet fairly late. Uh, I was 30 years old, and uh, the trombonist Jim Staley said to me, uh, "Reese, starting to play trumpet at age 30 is like deciding to become an athlete <laughs> at age 30." <laughs> and I was so pissed off because I was so excited. You know, I, I I chose trumpet, started playing trumpet then because I realized I was losing my hearing playing guitar, and I wanted to play a softer instrument. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How's that working out? <laughs> and uh, well, at least it's you know the bell isn't right. It's pointing away from me. It's, right? it's, yeah. it's pointing away from me exactly. Uh, it's true, but think about a trumpet. It can be heard three apartments away uh, in any direction. Absolutely. Um, uh, but then you know George Lewis, the trombonist. I told him I was playing trumpet, and he he just had had a big smile on his face and said, "Well, Reese." Welcome to the school of sore lips, <laughs> and it was so encouraging and uh, uh, made me happy. But uh, one of the first people I studied with was a, uh, a teacher uh, named Carmine Caruso, and he had me uh, playing pedal tones. And so for the first year, I was playing a lot of pedal tones to uh, strengthen my lips. And uh, those are extremely low yeah, notes on the trumpet. Yeah, very, very like two octaves below the normal range. And uh, and so for outdoor spell, I decided to make use of those pedal tones. And what you're hearing, you know, with those low, kind of uh, flatulent noises, uh, are in fact pedal tones. Sure. Do you find that as you kind of play these various tones uh, off one another, and I, I know you have uh, means of kind of accompanying yourself with multiple yeah, uh, iterations yeah. at the same time. Do you find that they combine in ways you did not expect, or are you intentionally choosing particular like sets of pitches, places in the range, to, to produce a certain effect, or is it maybe a combination? It, it depends on the piece. It's a sure. compositional decision. Uh, uh, for certain pieces, I decide to play in the very extreme low range uh, of the trumpet, meaning two octaves below its normal range. And then in the very, very high Dizzy Gillespie sort of range, playing high triple C's and uh, whistle tones and things like that, leaving absolutely nothing in the mid-range. Uh, precisely because five minutes down the line, I can go to, to the mid-range. Right. And then it gives a sense of variety to the pieces. As we listen to these pieces, can you give us kind of some idea of where the line between composition and improvisation falls, I guess? Well, um... I have to back up a little bit in order to answer this question. Sure. Uh, it takes 10 years to learn how to play an instrument. So I started playing in, uh, I think, 83. And by 1993, I, 
When I started playing guitar, the beautiful thing about guitar, it, I mean, it takes 10 years to really master it, but at least you can be playing in the band. Right. Uh, you, you, <laughs> you practice every day your bar chords and, um, and your fingers get a little bloody. But after six weeks, you can play basic things in a band. With trumpet and brass instruments in general, it does not work like that. And uh, as soon as I started playing and realized that it was going to take uh, quite a bit of time to get this down, uh, I decided to keep my trumpet in the closet. And that's what I did for 10 years. Uh, but by the 90s, I was ready to come out. And I had developed a certain style. Uh, of making the trumpet sound as much as possible like an electric guitar. And uh, I kept all my rock and roll modules from uh, uh, my guitar playing days and uh, put the trumpet through distortion and wah-wah pedals and uh, various uh, whammy bar effects uh, and played the trumpet uh, over the electronica music uh, that was very big back in the 90s and I developed a certain style with it which uh, we can hear on the ninja tune recording neon right and this was done in collaboration with a British composer uh, who did all the electronics uh, named Martin Wheeler uh, after a period of time uh, 10 years maybe playing this style I got back into working with 100 electric guitars 200 electric guitars right. Uh, I think that was around about in the year 2000. But uh, three years ago, I started to miss playing trumpet. And uh, after you write a piece for 200 electric guitars, I, what are you going to do next? <laughs> write something for 400 electric guitars or, or 1,000? I mean, it's starting to get a little ridiculous. Right. And with the current economic crisis, because those babies are expensive to put on, uh, just even logistically, uh, I decided to get back into uh, uh, playing brass. And uh, at first, I, I released a record uh, with these wonderful musicians from Bern uh, called The Bern Project. And uh, I was in, and it was an in-between period for me. I was still using the techniques that I had used uh, during the 90s. Um, but I realized, I, I, you know, when you the first thing a trumpet player has to do is find his or her own voice uh, so that you develop a style of playing that doesn't so people don't immediately call to to mind miles right you know or dizzy or this one or that one uh, the job of the, the trumpet player is to find their own voice but then once the voice is found and I had found my voice during the 90s developing a specific style the question becomes how do you break past your own voice and I think it, uh, I'm a little hazy on this it was either two or three years ago um, uh, I just decided that I would jam uh, and record myself uh, for at least 20 minutes a day uh, I decided I started to get very good at improvising and making pieces that sounded like formal pieces uh, intuitively uh, in 20-minute segments. Were you playing just unaccompanied or were you playing unaccompanied, or? unaccompanied uh, with my various augmenting systems sure. and looping systems. Okay. Um, I gradually developed, as part of my instrument, uh, a system where I used two uh, line four 
uh, is that what they call them? Uh, no, line sixes. Uh, I think it's called the L4 or something like okay. that. It's, it's a looping device. Uh, but the beautiful thing about it, it, it's not a loop where you, you play something and it just goes on endlessly. It dies out as you add more things. So it's kind of like an analog tape delay. Okay. And uh, another device uh, called a, he a head rush, nice, uh, which is made by Akai. And these gradually became my instrument uh, with the trumpet or the cornet or the flugelhorn or whatever it is that I'm playing uh, or the pocket trumpet. Uh, through these devices, uh, I, you know, I learned to work with them. Uh, and so every day I'd make a composition. Usually I did two 20-minute uh, sets. Uh, and as I did this, I found out, I developed a vocabulary, you know, of, of what worked and what didn't work. Uh, the, you know, back in the 70s, I'd studied uh, uh, Asiatic Indian music mm -hmm. with a, a, a singer, North Indian classical singer named uh, Pandit Pranath. Uh, Lamont Young also studied with him, also John Hassel. And uh, I was one of his students also. And the approach uh, I take to my new trumpet pieces is very similar to the approach I took when I was singing a raga uh, with uh, Pandit Pranath. Uh, as I said, gradually I found a way that uh, worked for me. Uh, and, and I started playing out. And when I started playing out, uh, I would go to the concert with absolutely nothing in my head. Uh, in France, I worked with um, a technique called the Pichero technique. And Pichero used to tell his students, uh, before he passed away, may he rest in peace, uh, when you're playing trumpet, you have to tie a rope around your head and throw it into the Seine. Because if you're 10 seconds or even 2 seconds ahead of yourself thinking about what you're going to do, or two seconds behind thinking about what you just did, he said, all is lost. Mm. You have to be right there in the moment as you're playing.
And so I took this approach uh, for the first six months, I think, of playing out in this new style. Uh, but then I started working with a, a, a video image, live video image projection person named Angie, Angie Eng, who's a, um, uh, a New York artist now living in Paris. And okay. we started working together. And uh, I would do a 20-minute piece with her. Uh, that and somehow I would just get so inspired it would turn into 30 minutes or 40 minutes and Angie was be tearing her hair out I mean, she's a good improviser herself but she only had enough images for 20 minutes <laughs> and so I realized I, uh, through doing this that I had to start making scores and so uh, after I think it was a, a year of just developing the style. I don't think it was that long. I'm upping it. I think maybe I worked for four months, uh, you know, making all these pieces. I picked the best ones, you know, the ones that really, really worked uh, formally. And uh, I made scores out of them. Uh, scores in terms, not so much, uh, I, I would write out some of the riffs. I transcribed some of them uh, and uh, pasted them, you know, into a score with timings. Right. Uh, just so I would remember in general what the riff was. So it's not a score like Bach or, or Stockhausen, you know, where you're reading every single note, but uh, more like performance instructions. Uh, open up with the G tonality on the left and right channels, things like that. Sure. At 40 seconds, go into an A tonality. Uh, so, so they're more like charts. But... At first, I was very hesitant to make scores because it went against my training as an improviser. Uh, no improvise, you know, when the band leader asked the improviser, Oh, can you play that solo exactly the same way? You know, you, you usually get a dirty look from the, the, the trumpet right. player. And, and, uh, so I, I, I hesitated. Uh, but I had to do it, you know, if I was going to work with Angie. Oh, and I have another anecdote. Uh, one time I had a trio. We were playing in Chicago with a guitarist named David Daniel. And uh, uh, I think the drummer was Ryan Sawyer, uh, who's a wonderful drummer uh, based here in Brooklyn. And uh, it was a group program. You know, we were one act uh, among three or four other acts. And we were supposed to play, I think, a total, no more than an hour. And so I opened up on a kind of a minimalist piece, and, and there was a score. And I thought I had the score memorized. And uh, and I thought I had played for 20 minutes. But when I listened to the recording, it was 40 minutes. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed because uh, we ended up going overtime. And, uh, you know, the audience liked it, and it was good, but... I just felt, you know, it's tiring for the audience to have to listen to a lot of stuff. And if you say you're going to play for an hour, that's all, you, you know, it's sure. enough. So I was really embarrassed. Uh, so after that show, what I did is I bought a huge wall clock. And now what I do is I put it on stage. I set it to midnight. You know, I have my score with the timings. Uh, and, and I read off that. And I get perfect timings <laughs> for <great>. every performance <laughs> and, and now no more complaints and I don't have to be embarrassed anymore <laughs> Thank you.
Uh, you likened the development of this kind of met- compositional methodology to singing ragas, and uh, certainly my education here is is limited. But from what I understand, they have pretty strict like scalar and rhythmic, uh, you know, kind of determination, so that a particular raga might involve this set of notes and this particular set of rhythmic patterns. Did you impose those same kind of restrictions on yourself while you were making these pieces? Uh, the, the development is, is sim- there's a lot of improvisation that, I mean, there's certain set things you do that are like, you know, heads, you know, that have to be played. Uh, there's certain rhythmic section that, uh, have to be played. But I think the approach, or I don't think I know that the approach that I take, uh, is more in spirit, uh, than in, uh, actual practice. So, it, in no way, shape, or form am I up there playing a raga. Absolutely right. It's just a similar mindset of uh, uh, knowing ahead of time which tonalities I'm going to play in. There's certain riffs, you know, that have to be played, um, but the development of those riffs uh, uh, is purely decisions that happen in the moment. Uh, working with the delay loops. The thing with the delay loops is. Uh, one time I was working with a, a wonderful bass player uh, in London who was coming out of the free improvisation tradition who completely understands the way I played. But we just got into talking so much, you know, before the gig and, you know, we hadn't seen each other in a long time. And uh, we, we forgot that maybe we should do a rehearsal together, <laughs> you know, so that he could get used to this. And so uh, he would make a change. Uh, during the performance very quickly, and I couldn't respond because of the rhythm of these loops. Uh, once I set, set one up, it takes uh, at least two minutes uh, for it to die out before I can get into a new place with it. So th- these loops um, are set to different timings. So maybe one will be uh, an eight-second loop, another one will be a nine-second loop, another will be a ten-second loop. So what I'll do is I'll play one one riff in the left channel. Uh, one of the looping devices goes to the left channel, extreme left. The other looping device goes to the right channel, extreme right. And the other one is dead center. And so I'll play a riff on the first uh, looping device, left channel. And then I'll play exactly the same riff on the right channel. And they'll start phasing. And then exactly the same riff on the uh, center channel and uh, in combination they make a a constantly phasing, constantly changing single line melody uh, which will go on and evolve for two minutes uh, perhaps but in the meantime I'm adding other things on top of it and as I add other things the, the original riff that I put in starts to die away all to say that it, it's a slowly evolving process that reflects, I suppose, my background as a minimalist composer and is indeed evocative, you know, perhaps of Poppy No Good's Phantom Band, uh, you know, by Terry Riley and uh, composers like that. Uh, but I can't make sudden changes. You know, that's the only problem sure. with this technique. And the people that play with me uh, need to realize that.
mentioned that you had originally wanted to play trumpet, uh, you know, to kind of change your your sonic palette and maybe save your ears a little bit. Um, do you, what was it that made you want to play the trumpet through all the effects that you had from your guitar days? And what is it now that makes you want to uh, maybe hear the trumpet in a different way? Um, I'm going to give you the real reason I picked up trumpet. I mean, part of it was because I thought it would be wise. You know, I, my original instrument actually was uh, clarinet. Right. And then I played flute for many years, uh, interspersing that with French horn. And, uh, uh, and of course, I played keyboards. Uh, basically, I've always been a wind player. And I don't have any feeling for strings, uh, which is possibly why when I play guitar, I just play one note. It would be very difficult for me to play one more than one note on guitar because I, I just can't figure out that it, a guitar. It has so many frets. I just can't figure <laughs> out where to put my fingers, you know. And I have another confession to make. Uh, I always wanted to be able to play as fast as Tony Iommi. And I tried and I tried and I tried uh, and I could never arrive. I took lessons. You know, from the Guitar Center here in New York, I, I, they gave me a heavy metal guy. And they, they say, really, you want to play heavy metal? This was like in 1981 or something <laughs> like that. Said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and he tried to teach me. He's a good teacher, but it just never happened. But the beautiful thing about trumpet, it, a trumpet only has three vowels. Uh, I have lower than average digital dexterity and so trumpet was just a perfect fit for me you know with trumpet with one vowel position you can hit at least seven notes when you're a beginner uh and it, it, the highest note on trumpet has never been played you know so it, it's it's uh it's limitless uh i initially got interested in brass because i wrote a brass octet in 1982 called Four Brass, which was originally uh, for a piece by a choreographer named Carol Armitage. Uh, called, I think the name of the piece was Massacre on McDougal Street. And we had Olu Dara, uh, Ron Tooley, uh, Jim Staley, and George Lewis were on trombone. Wow. Um, uh, the, the trumpet players I had, George did the contracting, and he got me the trumpet players from Cats. <laughs> and... I'll tell you, with that piece, we needed it, you know, because um, uh, there were so many high Fs, you know, above the high C, and, uh, you know, and Olu Dara looked at that and said, I'm not playing that part, <laughs> you know, but the guy from Cats looked at it, and he just nailed it, and those guys nailed it. Uh, Anton Fear was on drums uh, from the Feelies, and uh, I was so inspired by what I heard, and I said, I got to, you know, I was passing by Manny's, and I saw a trumpet. And I said, I got to get myself one of those things. And uh, that's how it started. Sure. Uh, but when I got into defining a personal voice, as a composer, uh, this was in the 90s when I really, you know, got past my influences, you know, and found my own voice. Uh, as a composer, uh, a big thing, I was living in Paris, and I still live in Paris, but I'd moved there in 1988. Um, and by the beginning of the 90s, there was this whole new movement of instrumental music with no voice, no rapping on top that was uh, completely electronic. 
And these kids were pouring their hearts out with using their cheap Atari computers. There was even a group called Atari Teenage Riot, you know, out of Germany. It was yep. absolutely fantastic. Of course, early Aphex Twin, uh, this composer Ed Rush doing amazing things on drum and bass. Uh, uh, you know, and all this fantastic electronic music coming out that was just taking my breath away. And I wanted to be a part of it. You know, of course, I was heavily into MIDI myself. But, uh, frankly, being an electronic music composer is a full-time occupation. And, uh, and being a trumpet player is a full-time occupation. Uh, so I decided I would just stay with the trumpet part of it and, uh, work with another composer who, who in this case was Martin Wheeler, uh, the British composer I was, uh, talking about who was living in Paris also at the time. And, uh, to do something together. And I thought, Gee, you know, it'd be really nice if I could make my trumpet sound like a guitar so I can finally play as fast as Tony Iommi. <laughs> and, and that's what happened. And I was playing as fast as Tony Iommi, but on trumpet. And it, it just, uh, made, I was so happy, you know, to have found that style. And the first record that we put out, uh, with Ninja Tune on their, uh, I think it's the, the imprint is N-Tone, uh, was called Neon, uh, which is a, critical success it got written up in the wire and it was even a commercial success and uh, uh and did i answer your question you did well you answered the first part of it so what is it now that you hear that makes you uh you, you, it's not that you're not using effects you certainly are as you've described but your your trumpet sounds more like a trumpet yeah, on the new record exactly than on the previous record um when, when i first picked up trumpet again when i came back to trumpet I, th I'm, again, I'm not sure of the date. Uh, you know, I, I might have picked it up again three years ago, something like that. Uh, I was playing the way I played in the '90s, and I found that I was getting bored listening to myself. I don't like to do the same thing all the time. Sure. You know, uh, I'm a composer. As a composer, I'm known I'm known for playing the same note all the time. But uh, on, on trumpet, I didn't want to do that. Uh, and I wanted something new that would be more about uh, the sound of a pure trumpet mm -hmm. rather than the sound of a d distorted trumpet. Uh, and so that was the idea, to use the full range of the trumpet. Uh, I had been studying, oh, I should make an, uh, my background is, is a classical musician. You know, I was conservatory trained in, um, uh, in composition. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to teach theory, uh, music theory. When I first started studying trumpet, uh, I went the classical route initially. Uh, and then I said, what am I doing? Uh, because by that time, uh, I may have been trained as a classical musician, but uh, even in the 80s, for the 10 years prior to that, uh, I'd been playing mostly in rock clubs and jazz clubs, you know, that I had in a classical context. So I said... Uh, you know, I'm not going to study in a classical tradition. That's ridiculous. I'm not going to play Bach on trumpet. And so the teachers I had uh, came completely out of the jazz tradition. And, uh, you know, I had to learn how to play w what all trumpet players, you know, coming out of that tradition, I had to learn how to play over changes. I had to learn all my majors and all my minors, you know, playing over uh, two minor seven, five, seven, one progressions and stuff like that. Uh, and it was a blast. Uh, 
the bane of every trumpet player's existence is high notes. So I had a tooth, one was slightly in front of the other, and it was putting a hole in my lip uh, every time you know I played above a high G. I, I mean G just above a staff and below the high C. Sure. I mean, even anything in that range. So uh, I had a dentist cap the tooth. I mean, and when I told my trumpet, other trumpet players' friends, they said, you did that? And they just <laughs> laughed and laughed and laughed because everyone understood. But then uh, I was working with this guy in Paris named uh, Andrew Crocker, uh, who's a, a trumpet player there, uh, who introduced me to this uh, Pichot technique. Uh, and by pressing the lips very firmly together, uh, making an M kind of sound and putting the back of the tongue up against the roof of the mouth, you create an enormous amount of pressure in the back of the mouth and very little pressure in the front of the mouth. And so uh, now my problem is playing low notes, <laughs> uh, you know, hitting high triple C's uh, on most days. Uh, is 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 not a problem anymore, uh, and I had spent. Is the point of that technique to make that more sustainable? Yeah. Over the long term, like I can play uh, uh, a high C, for example, with very very little pressure on my lips, uh, and I can hold it for as long as I have breath. I, I'm not like Peter Evans. There's this other wonderful trumpet player. Who's my favorite trumpet player in New York named Peter Evans. And I'm so jealous of him. He can do circular breathing. I tried and I tried and I tried to do circular breathing. I can never get that technique. Now, <laughs> Peter can do that. I haven't talked to Peter about this, but uh, I, when he's, I've seen him perform a number of times here in New York and in Paris where I live. And uh, it looks like he's using the, exactly the same technique uh, or a very similar technique when he's playing. Um, now, the reason I'm talking about this is because I had studied this technique during the 90s uh, and wanted to uh, incorporate this in my new work. And so that's why on Outdoor Spell, uh, we hear pure trumpet. It's going through devices, sure, but, but it's, there's no distortion on any of the tracks and no overdubbing. Uh, all of that stuff is essentially live.
there's also a lot of the the sound of the human voice. It makes the whole record very, very kind of breathy and organic. Not insubstantial, but just it feels very much like it's produced by a human body. On the on the first piece, it it opens uh, with with the, my voice. Yeah. Uh, using a technique that uh, I pinched from uh, Charlemagne Palestine, um, uh, you know, that brings out the overtones. Uh, uh, and I, you know, trumpet players have a history of singing, you know, also. And, uh, uh, you know, so I wanted to be part of that tradition also. Sure. As I was uh, to get ready to, to interview you, kind of listening back uh, over a lot of your catalog, it doesn't seem so much like your music is uh, evolving in some linear fashion, but more that you, over the course of time, combine different phases of your life into whatever music you're making now. It's not so much that you abandon something or say, okay, I've moved past this now, but more like as you go along, you just have more things to draw on for each new kind of iteration of your I think th there's definitely a vertical aspect uh, uh, to the work that I do. E even though, for example, Outdoor Spell is definitely a new style that uh, no one has heard from me, at least, uh, before. Uh, it's definitely the same composer. I think that's what you're saying, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, with Guitar Trio... Uh, my piece that was originally, that I did in 77, that was originally for three electric guitars, bass, and drums, and now is for ten electric guitars, <laughs> bass, and drums. Uh, you know, it was a piece that was made for rock musicians to be played in rock spaces. Uh, at the time I made it, I was very, uh, hesitant about calling myself a rock composer because I had too much respect for the form and didn't want to be considered that I was appropriating another form, uh, like some kind of colonist, which is why I insisted on playing those pieces at Max's Kansas City, at CBGB's, and places like that to, to make sure that it was authentic. Uh, so we have a piece there that's definitely rock, but definitely coming from my background as a harpsichord tuner, uh, and is someone who sang in Lamont Young's The uh, Theater of Eternal Music and played in Tony Conrad's Dreams uh, Syndicate uh, at the beginning of the 70s. Uh, with the trumpet work, you know, we hear these influences, we hear a little bit of Tony in there, you know, a little bit of Lamont, but uh, we hear other people too. When you were studying, uh, I guess particularly, with Lamont and, you know, kind of early on forming your, your conception of who you would be as a composer. Was there some, was there some moment where you realized your, your musical palette was going to be significantly different from those people that you were studying with, that you were hearing, you know, you wanted to incorporate the sound of electric guitars and you wanted to be working in an idiom different from that that you were coming from? Uh, as we were saying, earlier or discussing earlier um i don't care whether you're a composer coming out of uh, a classical tradition or jazz or rock or folk or an instrumentalist uh coming out of any of these traditions uh eventually there comes a time when you have to break past your teachers and define your own voice mm. and uh uh in the early 70s, all the pieces that I was doing, 
ended up either sounding like Lamont or Tony or Charlemagne Palestine or Marianne Amishay. And, and that's okay for a student. Yeah, you have to, you have to start somewhere. Uh, but eventually, when I was around 24, I said, you know, I've really got to find my own voice. And so I was looking around at what other composers did to find their own voice. And I looked at Steve Reich and, uh, and I noticed that he had incorporated his studies of Ganyan drumming uh, into his his pieces and made a piece called Drumming uh, that was quite successful. And uh, it was really beautiful that owed uh, a lot to Ganyan drumming, but it was definitely his own voice. And then on the other hand, I saw Phil Glass uh, working with a complete jazz instrumentation, uh, but but doing things with it that was completely his own voice. Uh, uh, Lamont coming out of, uh, you know, being influenced by Pandit Pranath, uh, et cetera. So I said, what could I be influenced by? Uh, you know, like these guys that, that would be more, for want of a better word, me. And uh, then one night, a composer friend of mine, Peter Gordon, who um, uh, had an orchestra called the Love of Life Orchestra, uh, said, Reese, have you ever been to a rock concert in your entire life? And I said, well, Peter, no, I haven't. I mean, I had listened to rock, uh, you know, I'd listened to records, the Velvet Underground, the Stones, uh, Grateful Dead, you know, this one and that one. But I'd never been to a concert, a uh, rock concert. So Peter said, Reese, uh, come on down with me. There's this really cool club. It's called CBGB's. And there's this nice band. You're going to like them. I'll take, take you there tonight. And so we went. And it, this was in May 1976, and the Ramones had just put out their first album, and it was the Ramones. <laughs> and that was the first rock concert I saw in my entire life. And it was so exotic for me, you know, to see all these guys on stage with guitars, you know, electric guitars, making these, like, really cool moves. And because uh, I, I grew up in a classical environment, where, you know, with people playing oboe you know, with a harpsichord or something like that, or concertos or string quartets. And so it was completely exotic and new for me to see this. I was so impressed. And also, I felt something in common with this music. I might have been working with one chord. They were working with three chords, you know, so it was a little bit more complex than what I was used to. <laughs> but I thought that maybe with practice, I could work up to it. <laughs> you could add a couple extra Yeah. Chords. And no, and I, I'm just kidding around, but seriously... um, uh, what I saw changed my life. Uh, fortunately for me, there was a, a com composer guitarist named Scott Johnson uh, who had just gotten a brand new Stratocaster and he wasn't using his Telecaster. So he gave me a couple lessons, uh, show me how to play bar chords on the Telecaster in a basic blues scale. You know, and I practiced and practiced and practiced and, uh, and that's how I started playing guitar. And, uh, I played out with a band called the Gynecologists, and um, uh, yeah, that 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 name went that name won a, a prize. You know, what, what's the worst name? It was in the Village Voice, and they gave four choices: the urologist, the two other horrible names, and uh, the gynecologist, and and the, the gynecologist right. won. And um, uh, but. When I first approached guitar, I, I had an arrogant attitude because on, on flute, I had played, you know, the Boulez Sonatine for flute and piano. And, uh, you know, I could count 
And I said, yeah, I thought this is going to be easy playing rock. All I have to do is count to four. But I got up there and started playing. And man, I was stiff. You know, it was obvious I was not a rock musician. And it, it, it became evident very quickly, you know, that I needed to do some work. And so uh, I quit that band and I joined another band where I wasn't the leader. And uh, it was a band called Arsenal. And through playing with them, uh, after a period of time, I finally got it. And uh, it was only at that point of actually playing uh, in, in rock bands uh, that I was able to make a piece that reflected everything I was. Uh, as a harpsichord tuner, as a minimalist, and uh, incorporating the rock music that I loved. And that piece was Guitar Trio. <laughs> You know, it's so interesting hearing you speak and even even watching you speak. Uh, and I mean this next thing as a absolutely as a compliment. You still seem to have a very kind of almost childlike wonder about this music uh, and a and an openness to tackling whatever comes along and to not you know to not just saying, well, I've already done it. What else could there possibly be to do? but to actually find out what there is to do. Do you still feel that sense of wonder where music is concerned? Uh, there was a, a wonderful visual artist who's quite well known. His name is Marcel Duchamp, mm -hmm. and um, who uh, taught John Cage how to play chess. <laughs> and um, uh, he always said that if you want to stay young, the way to stay young is to keep your curiosity. No matter how old you get, if you stay curious, uh, you'll keep your youth. And it's, for me, uh, doing the same thing all the time it would just be boring. You know, I, I like to do new things, but I'm not going to deny who I am. You know, uh, so, so it's not, for me, it's not so a matter of rejection, it's a matter of evolution. Mm. Um, and incorporating new things, exploring new things. Uh, the, I just bought a violin, an electric violin, <laughs> and uh, because why not, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And 
Uh, also, I realize, you know, I said earlier that I have absolutely no talent as a string player. And uh, I'm going to start taking lessons. When, it's an electric violin. When I get back to Paris, and I try to put the, uh, you know, the bow on the, the strings, and I was playing it for the first time, not knowing what I was doing, and no sound came out. I mean, normally when you put a bow on a string, there's supposed to be a sound. It was plugged sure. in. It was plugged in. You know, I had the volume up, and n nothing came out. And it was... So I, I, I wrote on my Facebook page, you know, I'm supposed to get a sound, right? What am I doing wrong? Help! <laughs> and, uh, and I got, immediately got responses from the string players, you know, that are on my page. Uh, uh, Reese, did you put rosin on the bow? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that was the trick. But I mean, to directly answer your question, uh, the key, the, it's very important to stay excited and, uh, I know certain composers who shall remain nameless, but they know who they are, uh, th th that think once you've discovered fire, you know, what are you going to do afterwards? Well, I could have said that, you know, after the 200 guitar piece, right? Uh, what am I going to do after that? And what I came up with, you know, to, to keep it interesting, to keep it real, to keep it alive, uh, is get compact, get down to basics. And, uh, you know, for me, the basics was getting back uh, uh, to my trumpet. And uh, that trumpet had been in the box for a while. And when I opened the box and dusted it off, it said, baby, baby, where you been? <laughs> uh, my guest is Reese Chatham. He has a new record called Outdoor Spell and also a series of shows coming up in various European countries. And if you go to thejazzsession.com, there'll be a link to his website, which has all those shows listed. It's been such a, an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. I thank you for uh, taking the time to do it. Thank, thank you. you very much for having me on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. music from Reese Chatham. And as I said toward the end of the interview, please do visit thejazzsession.com. And in the show notes for this show, you'll find a link to Reese's website. And if you go there, you can see his European dates, which are coming up in several different countries and uh, well worth your time. So check those out. And if you're in one of those countries, go see him. Okay. Thanks.
This is the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. The Jazz Session is online at thejazzsession.com. Pretty simple to remember. And if you go there, you can become a member. That is how this show survives. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year if you prefer to pay in a yearly sum. And there are levels up from there, and uh, every level helps keep the show alive. But without your support, there's definitely no way the show survives. So please do become a member. That's it for this week. That's the sound of my sister's cat. I don't know if you're able to hear that. You want to say something? Yes, the sound of a cat sniffing a microphone. Just one more reason that so many millions have downloaded episodes of the Jazz Session. Anyway, go out there if you would, be nice to cats, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another probably cat-free episode of the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.